0: plushcare.com slash weight loss
2: five of london's great houses and museums we visit kenwood and berg house in hampstead the magical dennis sievers house located close to liverpool street saint john's museum in Clerkenwell, and and finish at the grant museum of zoology down a narrow lane off heath street you will find berg house a building from the queen anne era steeped in 300 years of history Mark Francis is the director of Berg House and Hampstead Museum.
3: Berg House was saved from the council in 1979, and we're here to keep this beautiful Queen Anne building open to the public for free. We're a museum on the local area. Uh, we have an art gallery and a, a cultural hub for anything that happens around here from concerts to talks to workshops with children. It all happens in this building. We're in the Christopher Wade room, named after one of the great gents who saved the house. Christopher Wade was a local historian and wrote many, many books on the local area and the history of it. It has changing temporary exhibitions. The one that you're currently seeing at the moment is a retrospective of a wonderful Hampstead-based artist called Ishbel McBurter. And it allows us to work with people in the community to celebrate the culture around here. So sometimes it will have retrospectives like this one. Sometimes we'll focus on specific parts of history and our own collection to, to show there. I noticed a room downstairs that appeared as almost a small concert hall. Uh, well, we have a music room. It's a, it's a beautiful panelled room. But the room was always called a music room, even back to the Victorian period, in a different shape and form. It had an organ in for the Grills family, so they could have their family concerts there. Since the 1970s, It's been a place where musicians can hire to put on lovely recitals. What's the story behind the Hampstead Museum? Well, the Hampstead Museum was officially accredited in 1991. We were already collecting objects related to the local area. We now have nearly 4,000 objects in our collection. And they range from a great painting collection to fantastic photographs of London and Hampstead to more peculiar objects. There's definitely a set of skis in there somewhere. There, <laughs> there's the famous High Hill Penguin from the bookshop on the high street, which is one of the last remaining penguin display models, to shop signs, odd bricks, even a bag of rusty nails. They've all got a story behind them. They're all incredibly important uh, in terms of remembering the people that lived here, um, the art and the creativity that Hampstead inspired over the years. Berkhouse House was originally built in 1704. It was built on land reclaimed from Hampstead Heath. This was the only building between here and Camden. It was built uh, for a couple called the Sewells, and they were merchants in, in fabric. Um, but more importantly, they were Protestant dissenters. And the reason they chose here was outside of the city of London's boundary, which meant they could practice their religion. At the very end of its life, before the Second World War, its last residence uh, was the daughter of uh, Rudyard Kipling. They lived here until his death. We know he came here an awful lot. And what you see in the house at the moment is a little bit sympathetic to the 20th century, to those early years of the 20th century, when this really was quite a swanky home in Hampstead. But then the war happened and this house was left empty. It survived, not a drop of bomb damage to it, although the area around it was pretty much lost. Come the 1970s, the house was full of rot, had holes in the roof, and were left with this great listed building that no one knew what to do with. And some great residents of Hampstead got together and decided, no, we're gonna save it, save it for the community. And back in those days, there was Judy Dench and Michael Palin, Melvin Bragg. They all shook their buckets in the high street and 35 years later, here we are.
2: Dennis Seavers House in Spitalfields is a time capsule portraying the lives of a fictitious family of Huguenot silk weavers from 1724 to the start of the 20th century.
0: My name's David Milne, I'm the curator of Dennis Seavers House, 18th century silk merchant house in Spitalfields, literally 10 minutes walk from Liverpool Street Station. This house was built 300 years ago during speculation for the new immigrant classes of the Huguenots that came here. So the Huguenots arrived in the late 17th century from France in exile. So they were given free passage to come and settle in this area and over a period of hundred years, they made Spitalfields one of the wealthiest and powerful um, silk districts in all the world. Dennis Severs bought this house in the 1970s, saved it from demolition, and then people came to see how this young 30-year-old chap from California was living in this extraordinary way. Completely lit by candlelight, heated by open fires, furnished with period fittings, and then he began to create and tell a story of the people that would have once lived within this house and these streets. Every person that has lived and occupied a chamber or a space within the house for the last three centuries, when they had some money, they altered it. As Dennis travelled through the house, he began this gradual discovery of additions and people's lost lives, the ghost of them, was still here. So that became a basis for a story that takes you from the early 18th century into the late 19th century. Each chamber relates to a period, so all the collections are slightly different. In the early chambers, things are very simple. When you get into the 19th century, things are made by machines because it's an age of industry. Everything you see behind me, this is all Chinese export. This overmantle is based on the designs of Daniel Marrett, who was cabinet maker to the king, taken from an illustration from one of his catalogues. If you couldn't afford them, you could get an image and get a local craftsman to make it for you. Every single piece you see behind me is stacked up individually, and every single piece comes off to be washed and put back in its individual space, so that in a hundred years, this room will still look like this. One of the things that makes this house stand out from many others is not how it's built, the things that are within it, but actually the way that they are within it. Everything's living and everything's telling a story because this house was created by a man who lived here. He's only been dead for a few years now. Your experience in the house, of course, is is so unique. When you're here, everybody else around you is silent and they don't interrupt your own experience. There's nobody to lead you through. There's very little information and we have a sound installation you find the story yourself. And in every chamber, there's a tiny little note reminding you of the person you might be looking at. It might be a shoe tossed on the floor. It might be a a gown lying across a bed. It might be a wig just hanging on the wig stand. But you look at the painting and see the people of the stories that's unfolding before you. Every chamber you walk into, someone's either just got out of bed, they just left a table, they're in the kitchen baking, they're having a drink, so that our visitors are completely spellbound. The evidence of daily life is as real as it's ever going to be.
2: On our travels around London, we are visiting many fascinating places, but I think where we are now is up there with the best of them, and this gentleman will tell us all about it. Hello.
4: Hi, so I'm Jack Ashby, I'm the manager of the Grant Museum of Zoology at University College London. The the Grant Museum was put together to teach the first courses in zoology in England in the 1820s when University College London was founded and it's a collection of about 68,000 skeletons and skulls and animals in jars from across the animal kingdom and across time to be taught with, but mostly for the public to visit.
1: And how far back do some of your exhibitions go?
4: The teaching goes back to 1820s, 1820s. It's actually only been open to the public since 1999. So the ex- exhibitions don't go back very long, but the objects, well, the oldest is about half a billion years old. It was put together by a man called Robert Grant, who was the first professor of zoology in England. He was a man who taught Charles Darwin evolution before he came to, to London, both in Edinburgh. And this museum would have been the first place that evolution was taught at an English university.
1: So do you have many examples of animals which are extinct
4: here? We do, just because of the age of the collection we've got things that weren't extinct when in the 1820s that are extinct now. So we have the world's rarest skeleton, which is a, a quagga, which right. is a, a not very stripy zebra. Um, oh right. And they went extinct in 1883 and there's only seven or possibly six skeletons anywhere in the world. Now this is the only one on display in the UK. We've also got a big collection of dodo bones and um, a big collection of Tasmanian tigers or thylacines. Conservation is such a huge area of work at the moment to protect threatened uh, species, species, and museum collections are tent- fantastically useful resources to assist with that. Yeah, it's about seven percent of the collection on display. Um, is that all? Seven yeah, percent, which is actually very high <laughs> for a museum. Tiny. Most of, most museums less oh, than one really? percent. So uh, there's more specimens on display here than uh, at than, than the Natural History Museum. Is there something that the visitors seem to be drawn to? Definitely. The visitors' favourite is our, is our jar of moles, which is... Oh, I of, noticed that. <laughs> ...kind of like a sweetie jar. It's not a <laughs> sweetie jar. It looks like a sweetie jar with uh, 18 moles stuffed inside, and it's really caught the visitor's imagination. We're open Monday to Saturday, 1 to 5, um, and then we have a big public programme in the evenings and um, other dates as well. We have treasure hunts, we have plastic film lights, we do panel games. It's quite a fun, exciting programme, but it's all based around real research that's going on at UCL. Oh, wow. So we kind of create a, bit of a, a meeting of the researchers and the, and the public in a pretty informal, light-hearted way.
2: Amongst the many interesting and historical houses in Hampstead, perhaps one stands out, the imposing Kenwood House, which is an English heritage property.
5: Welcome to Kenwood House. My name is Jerzy kierkiewicz bilinski I'm the curator of the Ivy Bequest, so I have the rather lovely job of looking after this beautiful 18th century villa and the extraordinary collection of paintings it houses. Could you tell me a bit about the history of this wonderful building? Well, a house has stood here at Kenwood since about 1616, but really the house as it appears today is the product of two building phases dating to the 18th century. The house was acquired by a Scottish gentleman, William Murray, in 1754. Murray had trained as a barrister in London, and he's best remembered today as a towering figure of British legal history. Many of the cases he tried concerned the slave trade, and these led to the formation of the first...
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen,
5: abolitionist movements in this country which finally came to fruition at the beginning of the 19th century with the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. When he acquired Kenwood in 1754 acquired quite a small plain house and he soon realized that this house was rather too mediocre for his purposes He got a young up-and-coming Scottish architect called Robert Adam to work on the building. Adam remodeled the house, transforming what was a relatively modest villa into this neoclassical building that we see today. He added a beautiful north portico, a grand imposing entranceway to the house. He remodeled the ground floor rooms, most notably erecting a beautiful and celebrated library. It's considered one of Robert's masterpieces in architecture, as well as creating a beautiful south which overlooks um, the landscape grounds with views down to London.
2: Talking about the library, I noticed the ceiling in there was particularly ornate.
5: Yes, Murray clearly spent all his budget when doing up Kenwood on the library. It was built from scratch, it's not part of the earlier remodelled house. He collected books, he loved books and he employed Adam to create a room, really, that looks back to Roman architecture. Robert had spent four years in the 1750s in Italy, learning about classical architecture, meeting the great European architects and artists who were working in Italy at that time. Once he came back to London and set up his architectural practice, he decided that he would draw upon those lessons. And that's really what the ceiling and wall paintings in the library at Kenwood are. They're not just decorative, they're there to evoke the great Italian collection of classical paintings. What can you tell me about the collection within the house? The collection of paintings in the house is relatively small, but it's absolutely choice. Kenwood was acquired in 1925 by Edward Cecil Guinness, the first Earl of Ivy. Guinness was the sole proprietor of the Guinness Brewery when it was floated on the stock market. And at the age of 38, he basically retires. It's quite nice if you can (laughs) do that and he indulges one of his pastimes, if you can call it that, was collecting paintings. He, in fact, made his first major purchase of a painting at the age of 27. He buys a Rembrandt. Again, very nice if you've got the money to do that. But once he's retired, he starts collecting in a more concentrated manner. He collects mainly in the 1890s, up until the early 20th century. He acquires a collection of 300 paintings, exceptional works, paintings by Rembrandt, as I say, Hogarth, Watteau, but also Guinness forms a taste for 18th century British portraiture. These paintings by artists such as Gainsborough and Reynolds are just coming onto the art market, and Guinness starts collecting them, and he collects the finest examples. Now, in 1925, he decides that he wants to make a gift to the nation, and he acquires Kenwood and the surrounding estate not to live in. He intends to use Kenwood as a setting for 63 paintings from his private collection, which he handpicks, and these are the paintings that you can now see at Kenwood, although the collection has grown. The paintings in Kenwood were intended to create a type of romantic feeling. Guinness wanted you to come to Kenwood, walk through the beautiful landscape grounds, enter this delectable 18th century villa and view these paintings. The idea being that you would have the impression that these paintings have always been here, that this is the taste of an 18th century gentleman connoisseur. But actually, when you look at the paintings he selected, these, are really, these really reflect his own personal interests. He loved field sports, so we have many hunting scenes. He was a fine yachtsman, so we have paintings um, by Turner and 17th century Dutch maritime artists such as Kijp. He also quite clearly, looking at the selection here, had an eye for society ladies because there are very few portraits of men in the collection. The other aspect of his interest as a collector, as a connoisseur, was Dutch art of the 17th century and we have two of the greatest paintings in any collection in Britain. A work by Rembrandt, his portrait of an artist of 1665, and a tiny jewel-like painting by Johannes Vermeer, the guitar player of 1672. These are absolutely exceptional paintings that have an international significance.
2: Now, we talked briefly about the gardens and the grounds. Can we go into a bit more detail?
5: Kenwood was, uh, was quite an extensive estate in the 17th and 18th centuries, and it appears that in the 18th century, the grounds were quite formally designed. In fact, they contained many specimen plants. Um, Kenwood, at that point, belonged to the Earl of Bute, who, as I'm sure you may know, was instrumental in setting up Kew Gardens, and he used Kenwood as a type of retreat to undertake scientific studies and and experiments. He was interested in uh, botany and science, but also as a place where he could plant some of his specimens, although how they survived and thrived in the rather cold and exposed hills of Hampstead is is another question. When Lord Mansfield acquired the house in 1754, he started remodelling the grounds, um, turning the formal gardens into a more informal English landscape, garden Um, but it's really under the second earl the early 1790s that the grounds take their current form. The second Earl of Mansfield employed Humphrey Repton to remodel the grounds as they appear today. Um, Repton opened up views where you could see uh, London in the distance so really as you see Kenwood's grounds today it's the work of Humphrey Repton. Do you have a particular room in the house that you feel more at home in, your favourite room? Well, bar the dining room, which I must say I do love (laughs) because it's very rich, warm colours and of course the paintings, the music room is amazing because you have in the music room some of the greatest paintings, portraits by Sir Joshua Reynolds and Thomas Gainsborough in any British collection, particularly uh, Gainsborough's portrait of Mary Countess Howe is an incredible work absolutely monumental painting, and beautifully handled as well. The Gainsborough's handling of the oil paint is absolutely exquisite in that work. Another room I particularly like um, is a very small room, a very intimate space, Lord Mansfield's former dressing room. It was used really by Mansfield as a type of study, where he would work over his legal papers and documents, and where he would receive his business guests, people he was working with in terms of his legal practice in the centre of London. Its scale, the fact that much of the decorative scheme still survives, does give one a feeling of Mansfield as a man, his presence, and perhaps bringing as close as possible to encountering the person who engaged Robert Adam to create this wonderful house.
2: If it's not the past, but the future that you're interested in, how about a visit to the IMT Gallery?
1: My name's Mark Jackson. I'm the curator here at IMT Gallery in Bethnal Green. IMT Gallery started back in 2005 by a group of uh, curators and gallerists. And we were interested in putting together a space that put on the kinds of exhibitions that we weren't seeing in other spaces in London. And we were particularly interested in supporting artists who worked um, straight out of their degrees as well as artists who are more well-known, more established figures. One of the things we like to do in terms of the kinds of work we're showing is demonstrate the exciting breadth of practices that artists have. So we usually have about six exhibitions a year, sometimes a few more, sometimes a few less, depending on what we're doing. And alongside that, we also have a programme of talks, of performance artworks. So it's it's quite a varied, quite an eclectic. Uh, programme at the gallery. This exhibition that we've got on the moment is uh, by David Burrows called What the Frog's Eyes No Longer Tell the Frog's Brain and these works are a combination of tactile collage techniques, uh, cut out paper, cut out cardboard, uh, hand painted objects at the same time as being very much a kind of post-internet phenomenon. There's texts and images that you'll be familiar with perhaps from spam emails on the world wide web. And Burrows is really interested in the way that uh, image making and image presentation has changed since the internet. The idea that traditional art would have one very expensive painting accessible to a rich patron, for example, whereas images now become more powerful, become more accessible, the smaller, the low, lower in detail they are, because they can fly over the internet, and how that might change our understanding of art. What makes us different from a lot of other galleries is that we can take more risks with artists that we think are interesting, uh, with the kinds of projects that might uh, might not happen at other spaces. And uh, so the kind of things you're coming to see when you come and see at I.M.T. Gallery, the majority of them won't happen anywhere else. It'll be quite a unique experience for that. Sometimes the exhibitions we show are quite challenging, intellectually speaking, but uh, hopefully they're also presented in a way that makes them accessible and exciting. Because we're a gallery that shows a lot of new media, video work, for example, or net art, uh, we like to uh, engage with technology in in terms of how we reach our audiences and also how we we present the shows, how we extend the shows beyond the bricks and mortar of the gallery here in Bethnal Green. So we're quite an early adopter of uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook to reach new audiences and also to get people excited about the gallery who might not have even visited the space. Over the last few decades, the East End of London has become particularly well known for being a space for art galleries. Artists started to find interesting studio spaces here, old warehouse spaces, things like that. And then the galleries started moving in to represent their work. And so you have, like within a stone's throw, a number of different gallery spaces, different types of gallery spaces. And just down the road obviously the VNA Museum of Childhood, uh, the Whitechapel Gallery that operates a, a bus tour that frequently comes to visit us and the exhibitions we do. So it's a very kind of I suppose it's a very lively part of London in terms of exhibitions. Some of the exhibitions we've done in the past, uh, Malaysian artist, Yak Bose, Chong Pok, turned the gallery into a Malaysian-style cafe. Or we had uh, the Polish composer, Merek Holiniewski, transform the gallery into a gigantic light sensor so that when people moved through the space, it created sounds and images. and. One of the things that we've really tried to concentrate on is that this is a unique experience, it's a challenging experience perhaps for some arts visitors, but hopefully a unique and exciting one. Something where you leave the gallery knowing that your uh, interest in contemporary art has broadened, that the ideas presented have perhaps challenged you in some way, but mainly that it can be an accessible and exciting experience for all who visit the gallery.